to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. The music opening the show is from the new Phantom Operators album, Electric Sunrise. It was just released earlier this week and you can find it at phantomoperators.bandcamp.com. They gave us permission to play their music on the show and you'll hear this song, Lane Splitter, again at the end of the show. As you can tell, Derek and Brenda are the same person. You've never seen the two of us in the same room together, right? For the few that have, just roll with it. (laughs) Derek is sick, and he's sick in a way that makes him sound particularly pathetic, but also just not a good recording voice, uh, with voice splits and everything. Earlier today, he said, but I'm an adult with his voice splitting on the word adult. (laughs) He did edit the rest of the show, but I agreed to step in and help with recording intro outro for him. So here we are. This week's guest is returning friend and fellow kaiju fan, Anthony Wendell, author of the handbook for surviving a giant monster attack. Will he be able to help us survive this week's movie? We'll find out when he and Derek discuss the 1966 film Daimajin from director Kimiyoshi Yasuda. As always, Derek and his guests do end up talking about topics other than the film itself, but it's all related and it's all fun. And just so you know, this recording actually took place last year. So when Anthony says something is going to happen, it's already happened and it's awesome. Also, lucky you because it's already here. More good news, Kenny's back with a new look at famous monsters of Filmland. And we have a new segment this week. Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles makes its debut this week, courtesy of Mark Peterson and Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop, the store that specializes in the things your mother threw away. Let's get into all of that right after this. The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the oblong box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, the oblong box. The oblong box in color from American International is rated M. Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a whole short story or a novel, a chapter or two at a time. Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org. Thank you. From the creative genius of Roger Corman, who brought to the screen Edgar Allan Poe's most shocking horror tales, comes the ultimate in blood-chilling screen experiences. The Terror, starring the incomparable Boris Karloff. You think I'm mad, don't you? In the role he was born to play, The Terror, bedeviled by his own mad, all-consuming passions. With my own hands, 
the terror. His evil, mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. If he resists, kill him. American International presents The Terror, starring Boris Karloff, dean of all horror demons, in this, his most demanding terrorization. The Terror, a film group production in color and vestoscope. Monster Kid Radio presents Dr. Tong's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. News Flash. The big monster collectible news recently has been the announcement by the newly reformed Mego Corporation, a.k.a. Marty Abrams Presents Mego, is going to release to the general public an 8-inch assortment of figures based on classic movie monsters. The assortment includes Bela Lugosi as Dracula with red-lined cape, Lon Chaney Jr. as the face of the screaming werewolf, a glow-in-the-dark Frankenstein, a Count Orlock from Nosferatu, and an invisible man looking more like the invisible agent than Claude Rains, and the odd duck in the assortment, Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. Previous releases of the Mego action figure line was relegated to Target stores and Target.com only. Moving forward, all the new releases will be available wherever finer toys and figures are sold. Look for them early to mid-March. In other monster collectible news, Super 7 gave me a sneak peek at what they have brewing with their Universal Monster license. According to head honcho Brian Flynn, look for a new wave of 3 and 3 quarter inch reaction figures, additional super buckets, as well as a bunch more surprises that will be revealed next week at New York City Toy Fair, February 16th through 19th. I'll have a full report on that next time. Brian also let slip that they are once again will have the San Diego Comic-Con bodega filled with a ton of unique and interesting limited edition Universal Monster swag. That, of course, happens at the San Diego Comic-Con. Artist Spotlight! My very first Monster Artist Spotlight is going to focus on a man simply known as Stex, and that is according to his Etsy store handle. Stumbling onto this oasis of monster goodness didn't make my wallet feel very good. His storefront is simply brimming with his own creations based on classic movie monsters, as well as items from cryptozoology and a few nods to literature. Monkey's paw back scratcher or a USB drive, anyone? Head on over to Etsy and do a search for Stex. That's S-T-E-X-E. You will not be sorry. Spotlight on Vintage Monster Toys! With the announcement of Mego releasing the new monster assortment, I wanted to take a look back at the classic line of movie monster figures that Mego originally released back in the 70s. Under the banner of The Mad Monsters, Mego Corp released a set of four monsters based on literary characters. Why literary versions, you ask? Mego had tried to obtain a universal license, but lost it out to rival company AHI. Azarak Hamway International. Moving forward, Mega released their own series of monsters onto the toy shelves of the world. Included in the assortment were the Dreadful Dracula, Horrible Mummy, the Human Werewolf, and the Monster Frankenstein. Not having to stick to licensing regulations, Mega was able to add glow-in-the-dark hands and eyes for added kid appeal. Upon release, the line was a super hit and with that success, saw the release of the Mad Monster Castle in 1974. Of course, you know, every monster does need a castle to haunt. This playset was a smash hit, and actually pretty hard to find today. 
The monsters have been re-released a few times over the years by different companies. In 2005, Classic TV Toys brought back the classic Mego-style monsters, even going as far to release a version of the rare red-haired Dracula and the blue-haired Frankenstein, very spendy Mego variants from back in the day. And once again in 2013, Figure Toys Company released them yet again, even remaking the Castle playset. With this type of popularity, you can see it is hard to keep a good monster down. Until next time, this is Mark Dr. Tongue Peterson saying happy monster collecting, everybody. Space is a picture that you'll long remember for its blending of science and fiction, for its eerie terror, and for its story of an invasion from another planet that's almost beyond imagining. <coughs> I tell you, from its size and its appearance, this thing came from outer space. I even have reason to believe that there's some form of life in it. What do you want? What are you doing? Let me see you as you really are. of Frankenstein once again brings terror and nightmare to the screen in Lady Frankenstein. Joseph Cotton is Baron Frankenstein. But it's face. Devil with his face. I don't care what he looks like. I want him to live. Sarah Bay is Lady Frankenstein. That is what they call your father's life's work, a monster. And they're right. They are not right. She's beautiful. She's evil. And she'll do anything for love. Would you like to have my body bend to you? Would you like to make love to me? She creates a new, more terrifying monster. And only the monster she creates can satisfy her strange desires. Using her beauty and her scalpel, she cuts deeply into men's hearts. Yes, you're right. Kill it. There has never been a movie like Lady Frankenstein. Rated R. Battleground Productions presents Brass, the Devil in Whitechapel. The place is London, and the year is 1887, in a Victorian world of airships and ethereal batteries, of computational engines and ingenious automatons, where an enlightened empire strives to provide unparalleled blessings of scientific ingenuity to all of its citizens. But a very bright world casts a very dark shadow, and in London, one of the places where its darkness is impenetrable is the district in the East End known as Whitechapel. 
Join us for a special expedition into mystery, madness, and the uncanny as Lord and Lady Brass go in search of a missing child deep into the world of the Victorian occult, where poets, mediums, and diabolists are all met on the trail of the devil in Whitechapel. Brass, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie, Daimajin, was never featured in Forney Ackerman's run of Famous Monsters, but its name was listed in a kaiju filmography in Famous Monsters 114 from March of 1975, which I want to highlight today. It is a must-have for any kaiju fan, collector, as it is almost all about Japanese monsters. The cover is a sepia-toned Godzilla and Rodan fighting it out amidst the ruins of Tokyo, painted by Ken Kelly. The first article is all about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which is a reprint from issue 35. It is a detailed synopsis of the film with seven photos of Godzilla. It is followed by Monsters from Japan, written by Forey himself. In a way of introduction, Forey had this to say about kaiju films. The birth of Godzilla was one of the biggest things that ever happened in Japanese film history and his capturing of the imagination was responsible for the influx of an incredible number of monster movies which otherwise never would have augmented the horror and film fair here since 1954. Without Godzilla, it is unlikely there ever would have been a Mothra, Rodan, Majin, Ghidra, Gamera, Matango, Yogg, and a million other creatures from the smog monster to the giant Frankenstein to King Kong Kyoto style. The article goes on to list over 90 Japanese sci-fi and fantasy films, including today's film and one of its sequels. Forey later goes on to praise three of the heroes of the kaiju-verse. The late lamented A.J. Tsubaraya, the Ned Man of Japan with some Westmore and Delgado talents thrown in for good measure, Oshiro Honda, veteran director of just about everything from Godzilla onward, and a man whom not enough recognition has yet been given, Tomoyuki Tanaka. After all, if Mr. Tanaka hadn't had the imagination to produce Godzilla in the first place, there might never have been enough Japanese monster movies to warrant this special issue. The article goes on to give a brief descriptions of some of the top Japanese films like Rodan, Gamera, and The Mysterians. He ends the article with this cute anecdote. Recently, the editor speaking, 72 school children visited me on a field trip, and they saw the creature from the Black Lagoon and Lagosi's Dracula cape and dinosaur models from the King Kong and five of the seven faces of Dr. Lau and the claw of the thing from another world and a Harryhausen model of the Emir from 20 million miles to Earth and a dinosaur by Jim Danforth, and I even took them down to the dungeon to see Grizzly Land. You'd think they'd be satisfied after that, wouldn't you? Not a bit of it. What? No Godzilla? Was a disappointed reaction. So, for all Godzillaacs, I hope there's enough about your hero in this issue. Issue 114 also includes reprints from previous issues featuring The Manster, Frankenstein Conquers the World, a look at an Ultraman-like show called Kikaider, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra, Monster Zero, and Destroy All Monsters. If you love kaiju and want what we knew about them through Famous Monsters, seek out this classic issue, Famous Monsters 114. 
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. It's been way too long, and I think I say that every time I have you on the show. It's been way too long since I've had Anthony Wendell on Monster Kid Radio. How you doing, man? I've been busy uh, praying to my garden gnome in hopes that he would come alive and do my editing work, but sadly, nothing's come to pass yet. <laughs> well, you have to offer you to throw yourself off like a water feature or something, don't you? Oh, yeah. You really got to put yourself into your devotions for your stone creatures to come alive that's what i keep forgetting the movie we're talking about this week and as i mentioned at the top of the show uh, and well we've got anthony on the show so of course we're talking about a kaiju film but this time around it's it's a little different it's not a giant lizard-like monster it's a giant stone thing it's daimajin and it's fascinatingly cool and we're going to talk about that but first man i want to catch up with you what have you been up to been all over the place. Uh, I've been focusing on the writing. You know, can't, writers can't ever stop writing. Am I right? Oh, yeah. But I've been working on sending something out, uh, working on finishing a new project. I always hated that, you know, until they're ferment or until they're going in the next process, I can't tell people about them. But you know the one project and you know how much I've been like <laughs> squirming about. I want to tell everybody about it. That's going to be so good. I just need to find the right publisher that wants it. Meanwhile, I'm still an anime writer for Monkeys Fighting Robots, but that's only for a little longer because first part of the new year, Monkeys Fighting Robots will become just comic book related content and we'll be spinning off the other streaming media over to our new website, Pop Axiom, where I'll be doing the anime stuff over there. Okay, and that, that happens in January? Pop Axiom is open. Yep, that's the direction I'm going with that angle. Okay, so we'll make sure there's links to everything in the show notes, of course. Thank you kindly. By the time people hear this, it's up and running and ready to go, so listeners, check it out. All right. Right on, and the writing project you mentioned, yes, listeners, I I do know what he's talking about. I've read a little bit of it, and uh, yeah, it's something that's going to fit firmly in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Soon. Soon. Right on. Well, that's pretty exciting with the website stuff and kind of spinning off and you know, having a chance to, to be involved in a new website venture from the very beginning. That's that's pretty awesome, man. And of course, listeners, you've heard me play the promo here on the show. Anthony is the man behind the handbook for surviving a giant monster attack. As far as I know, he's an expert. So I watch enough of these to at least know something. I'll give you that. He's an expert. He's a fan. He's an author. And he's about to play the classic five. All right. I have been waiting for this. For listeners who don't know the Classic Five, we call it a game here on the show, but really, it's a conversation starter. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a question on them about classic monster movies, this or that, which one do you prefer? There are no wrong answers, and like I said, it's just a way to kind of start the conversation. Anthony, are you ready to play? Let's do this. 
All right, card number one. I'm going to pull this from the currently in production Kaiju deck. In production for sale, that is. I mean, I've had it for a while. But all right, here we go. Card number one. Ooh. Which is your favorite Shira Honda film, Rodan or Varan the Unbelievable? I feel guilty. I have yet to see Varan the Unbelievable. I'm kicking myself for that. But as you know, since I was part of the roundtable discussion for Rodan, Rodan had an impact on my life. Between it and War of the Gargantuas, those were my Jaws. Those were the films that made me afraid of the water over Jaws itself. So I've got to go with Rodan. It is, till this day, an incredible film. Monster of is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodan destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. So good, mm-hmm. so good, and scary. You don't you don't get a lot of scary out of the Toho Kaiju stuff for the most part. I mean, yeah, they're they're frightening, I guess. But when you have like real mood happening, like you do in Rodan, ooh. and there's tons of great mood, even throughout. And they never lose it throughout the whole film. Even when Rodan awakens, when he's coming out, the mood is, "How do we stop this?" And the mood of tension never dies. Mm-hmm. Only problem with the whole film isn't even the whole film. It's just an aspect of the film. Why did it take so long for those giant bugs, the Mega Nulons, to come back? <laughs> I mean, those things were creepy. Yeah. They should have been used more. I mean, that, they had that prop. I mean, they they made a life size giant bug. You think they'd find a way to recycle it or something? <laughs> Hey, you're preaching to the choir here, man. Rodan's one of my absolute favorite kaiju films, so you're preaching to the choir, man. All right. All right, card number two. The Munsters or the Adams Family? Munsters, but I'll admit, as we all do, those Adams Family reboot movies were good just because of uh, the actor, name escaping me. <laughs> Raul Julia. Raul Julia was, was perfect, but the Munsters were more uh, a part of my childhood. I've watched enough to say that uh, I enjoyed the monsters. Right on. Okay, card number three. Who would really win in a fight, Dracula or the Wolfman? Ooh, I gotta say Dracula. I mean, the Wolfman is fierce enough, but there are so many stories where we've seen uh, vampires 
make werewolves into submission. But at the same time, it's just like the old Dracula, especially watching the Universals, is just so, you know, seductive and more stealthy. But the old Wolfmans, especially the Talbot ones from Universal, he's furious. I mean, ferocious, violent. Now that I think about it, I want to say the Wolfman almost. The most I have in terms of basing it on, I have more the watching the old Universals and Dracula is deadly in his seductiveness, but the Wolfman is just pure fury and could do much more damage. So I got, I second thought Wolfman all the way. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I love me my Lon Chaney. So, Oh, and like I said, no wrong answers, no wrong answers. All right. Card number four. Oh, and this one's good because I like asking this one of writers. What classic monster movie needs a novelization? Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, man. Actually, I'm just going to say it just because we've talked about it. I want to say The Beast of Hollow Mountain. Hold it! Looks like there's been a big struggle around here. Cattle tracks go all directions. See? No one has dared to come this far. Let's turn back. You're too superstitious, Benoit. You're afraid of your own shadow. Not my shadow, senor. It's the shadow of that cursed mountain. Here is high adventure. And in the glorious and colorful Southwest. Starring Guy Madison as the courageous rancher who tried to solve the secret of Hollow Mountain. Hiding place of a monster spawned in the dawn of time. He dared to ride where no man had ever set foot before. Patricia Medina, the menace of the beast, stood between her and the man she loved. I'm getting married tomorrow. I do not want to be a widow or the wife of a murderer on my wedding. I mean, we watched it together, and it's another one of those films that wraps up far too quick without some kind of an epilogue. And you and me love our good epilogues. The Beast of Hollow Mountain, with a little bit more establishment of the beast, and a little bit more of an epilogue of what happened to those characters after would probably be it. Any movie that didn't that wrapped up too quick without uh, playing out how the characters succeeded or what they went on after the monster was out of their life really, in my mind, is what I gravitate toward when it comes to uh, what would benefit from a novelization. That's a fun film, too. I don't think it gets enough credit. Well, I mean, you and I both enjoyed it. We talked about it here on the show. Check the archive, listeners. It's in there. Oh, yeah. That was fun. All right, let's go back to the kaiju deck here for our final question. What kaiju suit do you wish you could try on for a day? I'd have to say the 80s Godzilla. The Heisei Godzilla right after versus Biolanti. Okay. Godzilla has always been iconic. But when I think of uh, iconic appearances, I go to Godzilla versus Biolanti. When they awaken him from the volcano and he comes up looking so primal and demonic with all the lava exploding all over him that is the suit that screams me of this is power so if i could put on anyone i'd probably be that one because it just you know it'd be the one that i feel like i could like feel the recreate this well not recreate the scene feel the energy that went into shooting that scene I know that there are other amazing kaiju out there i mean i've seen a lot of these movies and, and i love them all mm-hmm. But it's Godzilla. Come on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, second choice, just because I think it would be fun. 
probably King Ghidorah. Of course, the heads aren't puppets. The heads are on. Well, they're puppets, but they're not hand puppets. So I couldn't. You couldn't have them talking to one another. <laughs> like, all right, sorry, right, sorry, right, sorry, right, sorry, right, sorry. Right. <laughs> well, that was the classic five, man. How do you feel? I'm ready, willing, and able. Well, that was fun, and, and like I said, I, I love playing this with people. It's just a fun conversation starter. And uh, not, not that you and I need any help starting a conversation. I mean, we have plenty of movies to talk about. And this week we're talking about Daimajin, the first of the Daimajin trilogy, which, you know, is, is rather unique in all of kaijudom. I, I feel like this set of three films, it, it's a kaiju movie, sure. It's a giant monster kind of thing, but... There's also a lot of historical drama stuff going on here. It's fascinating to me, something that I don't see a lot of. It, this one really goes to, uh, it's playing more to its suits when you look at it, because when I started investigating into it, you know, this is Dae, which gave us Gamera. But of course, the Gamera films have a reputation of being iffy, mainly because of the fact that uh, it almost feels like they didn't know what they were doing almost in terms of, uh, you know, this was new territory for him, but it doesn't feel that way with Daimajin because most of the movie is samurai in nature. It's set in the samurai period. And Dae has an extensive backlog of samurai movies, including Rashomon, the Kira Kurosawa classic. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. So this one Unfortunately, doesn't get the attention as much attention as it should. But Dae here is truly playing to their strong suit of what they have to work with and what they know, and then throwing in some giant monster for an additional effect. <laughs> Which I actually wanted to bring up first is unlike Beast of Hollow Mountain, where we had a film where it was a decent film on its own and didn't need the giant monster. We're in the exact opposite here with Daimajin because. This is a film which is great on its own, but the giant monster is essential because it has to uh, bring a wind of vengeance against the evil people in this film because they did some insane evil in this film. It's integral to the story. The story is, is solely kind of built around this god, really, going around and, and doing what it does. It's interesting, like I said, because of all the historical fiction that you get in this. I mean, you look at Dai, they did the Zatoichi, uh, Zatoichi, do I say that right? Zatoichi films? Zatoichi, in fact. Uh, Zatoichi, thank you. In fact, the director has uh, experience with two Zatoichi films before he made this Daimajin movie. I mean, if, you, if listeners haven't seen those, and I have not seen them all. I've seen a handful of them. They're great. I mean, they're really good. And like you said, Rashomon, I mean, that's a classic. I've seen Rashomon, but I the Zatoichis is another one I really need to, uh, if I wanted to focus on more watching more samurai films, it'd probably be Akira Kurosawa and then more Zatoichis yeah. in trying to get, dive more into that territory. So yeah, Zatoichi, the blind swordsman is insanely good. Yeah. Yeah. Zatoichi on the road, Adventures of Zatoichi were both... Uh, shot right before he did this film. Director Kimiyoshi Yasuda. Okay, and do you know much about that director? I, I don't. Other than the fact he has done, he was samurai other than Daimajin for the most part. After Daimajin, he'd go on to do four more Zatoichis, and the other films on his resume also appear to be samurai in origin, so he's in his 
territory right now with making Daimajin. He didn't stay with the franchise, did he? He only did the first one? Yeah, the other two are uh, not him. Okay. And I say franchise, but really, I guess it's just a trilogy. Well, I guess they did do a television series for Daimajin at one, at one point, but that was much later on. Yeah, we can talk about that later. At Let's, some other point. Yeah, but I believe the only one who went all the way through, I've still got a compared on the notes, but, and the only one who's actually has any uh, experience with in the kaiju community is, of course, our old friend Akira Fukube. Which really gives this movie, and I don't know if it's, if this is the right term, but it gives it an air of uh, legitimacy in kaijunum by having that score, which is at a phenomenal score. Akira Fukube, a master when it comes to film score, not just his kaiju stuff. I mean, he, he did a lot more than just that, and... Man, listeners, if you don't have Akira Fukube in your rotation on your iPod or your MP3 player, you're missing out. I need to get more. All I have is the Destroy All Monsters soundtrack. Oh, it's so good. Do you have Amazon Prime or, or do Amazon Music? Yes, I do. Because there's a lot of it there. A lot of it there. Jackpot. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, was it a Rodan or a Varan? No, there was a Varan soundtrack released maybe even this past year. 2018 it's like a two disc set or, or whatever yeah it's, it's just phenomenal stuff anyway it's it's, it's phenomenal Fukabe's score here thanks to his mixture of making sure of the brass with the bum bums and the his wind section that likes to do that 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 whining that just really puts you uneasy and then the brass comes in and really shakes you up it's in full swing here it really is you can tell when he's gonna get his kaiju on because the music does take on this this majestic kind of dirge-like march i don't know of any other film outside of what he did for godzilla where his music just seems to fit so appropriately within the film this this Music just sits perfectly here, especially when the statue starts walking around. It is impressive. Now, should we talk about a little bit about just the story, just like a small like synopsis before we branch off to what we like about it? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times everybody's seen the movie that we talk about here on the show. This one, when we start getting into some of the kaiju stuff, especially the non-taihu kaiju, Non-Toho Kaiju. I'd say that three times fast. Especially the non-Toho Kaiju films. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know if people have as much of an awareness of them. So yeah, we should talk a little bit about what happens here. It is a historical piece. It is not set in contemporary or a modern city like, you know, the Godzilla films or the Gamera films or anything like that. I don't know the era. I don't know my Japanese history as well as I should, but it's basically samurai time. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, the story of the evil Lord uh, Samonosuke. Stages a coup, kills his lord and the lord's wife, but a faithful member of the house, uh, Kogenta, a samurai, saves Princess Tadafumi and Princess Kozasa, Kozasa, is Kozasa, and steals them away to his aunt Shinobu, a priestess, who watches over a statue of a god which apparently guards a majin, or demon, from awakening. Mm-hmm. Years pass, and... Samonosuke has basically done what evil guys do and, of course, uh, insurped and captured the innocent. And they're crying out for Tadafumi to come back and take his father's place. Unfortunately, things go wrong. Both uh, Kogenta and Tadafumi get captured. And Kozusa finds herself praying to the god of the statue, hoping he will come to life. And once you know it, he does. 
And when he does, it's just not a giant statue going around stomping on people. The earth itself opens up and swallows up the evildoers. It's great. <laughs> I really like to think that, uh, okay, let's start with that scene right there. Okay. Because Semenosuke has ordered that his henchmen destroy the statue because they're, he's insisting that on top of the son and daughter being alive, the statue is a rallying point that's helping to lift the spirits of the peasants. And you can't lift the peasant spirits. So he orders some henchmen to destroy it. They find it's too hard. They start with the head and pound a chisel into it that starts to bleed, which is so (laughs) disturbing and cool all at the same time. Yeah. And after that, to showcase a fraction of his power, storms and the mountain, a storm erupts with wind everywhere and the mountain starts to come apart. It's phenomenal work man i dig it so much that sequence so that bit and then the bit leading up to that where the priestess appears you know comes up to the guy is like you know the god's gonna come and strike you down that moment is probably the scariest moment for me when he slowly cuts her up um but the here i am giggling i don't know what that says about me but <laughs> you know, that moment is a scariest for me but when they are chiseling into daimajin's forehead Oh, man. Oh, God. It's just so unnerving and creepy. And and they do all these close-ups of the hammer hitting the chisel. And then just a little bit of blood comes down. And they all, oh, man. Wonderful work. Wonderful mood and atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Now, personally, I've got a small theory. Because they talk about how the statue is basically the god. Mm -hmm. Who defeated the Majin who is sealed in the mountain. So the god is sealing the Majin. But at the same time, it seems like what he has become now as a spirit of vengeance is almost like a combination of the god and the demon. The god is using the demon's powers to exact this vengeance. He does a lot of things that are just like, okay, this is this is good, but you know, you gotta you can back it up just a tiny bit. <laughs> Except for, well, well, you know, just when he starts, he defeats everybody, but then he's like, you know what? I'm still here. I'm just going to smash some stuff. <laughs> but it just seems like a better explanation is Daimajin is almost a fusion or a combination of the god and the demon. But the god is in control enough to keep it at bay. But when he sees the others doing wrong to the innocent, he'll let the demon inhabit the body long enough to go off and destroy almost symbolic of the whole him wiping his face it disappears and reveals the face of the vengeful spirit mm-hmm. like he's you know okay turn it on turn it off turn it on turn it off i do like that idea a lot actually when it goes off and starts killing all the evildoers i mean it's not doing it in a very benevolent way i mean <laughs> it's a vengeful god or or demon or or whatever you want to call it. or if you want to look at one of the promotional titles that the movie had when it was released here in the states, the devil got angry. Um, <laughs> it's it's not a happy uh, god running around doing what it was doing. So I could see that where maybe it's kind of like a mix of the two. I would love to find a movie poster uh, for this film 
with the title, The Devil Got Angry. I would love to see that. I'm not seeing that one. I'm finding Majin the Monster of Terror and the international release of Majin the Hideous Idol, but The Devil Got Angry, that's, that is nice. Yeah, I, I like that. I also like Fury of the Mountain God. I like that one, too. Oh, that's a nice one, yeah. Yeah, that was the uh, Hong Kong title when it was released there. So, you know, the movie, it's not wall-to-wall kaiju action. You know, you, you get a Godzilla movie, especially later on in Toho's run in the Showa era. You get Godzilla stuff happening quite quite a bit. He shows up every once in a while. Um, you don't have to wait till the end of the movie. In, in this film, you do have to wait till the end of the movie for the real giant monster stuff to happen. But I was so wrapped up in everything else leading up to that. The coup, the people who came in and took over the castle and when they're going to execute the two guys and they put them up on crosses. I mean, I was totally wrapped up into that story. Which going back to the point at the beginning of the the podcast where I talked about Hollow Mountain versus this film, this film, they make the kaiju element so essential for making sure that you have a way from turning the tides because they hammer in the fact that Samanosuke has essentially won. Mm-hmm. He's he's got power. The people are subjected to the point. They think of the prince and the princess as a symbol of hope that could come back, but they could. Come, they're hoping they're coming back with some mysterious army they raised while they were gone. The people have been so downtrodden. They they're not in a position of, oh yeah, we're totally ready to back you guys up with a coup. It's like no, Samanosuke has uh, tortured the rebellion out of them. Essentially, they all they have is hope that please, please, somebody do something. And then he captures Kogenta, the samurai that babysitter surrogate father for the pair of royal siblings, gets the son, and like you said, puts him up on crosses. He is exactly like, you know, 30 seconds away from winning. The whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. They have no backup, no nothing. Princess uh, Kozusa has a little boy next to her who just lost his mother and is just... Think she's a ghost hoping he's hoping that the first person he runs into in the middle of nowhere is some kind of magical being that would help him save his father they are at the lowest point of the low needing backup and when Daimajin comes in he makes sure to deliver some harsh judgment yeah and the movie has this sense of just dread and all hope is lost that even though as we're watching the movie, we know that the monster has been released from the mountain. I'm still thinking, you know, there's still a chance that that guy's going to get executed. There's still a chance that he's not going to make it in time. Well, unfortunately, uh, uh, Daimajin didn't wake up in time to save Shinobu, the priestess who had been, uh, watching over his local area for so long. Mm-hmm. We've established that uh, Daimajin's taking his sweet time to get up here, people. Uh, I do something to make sure you survive. It's pretty fascinating. I love the construction here of the story, and I have to claim ignorance here. I know nothing about the people involved in the making of the movie outside of, of Fukube. Uh, do you know much about like the actors or the cast or any of this? I, I was... Digging into it as I was watching it yesterday, other than Ifukube, nobody else really did anything that would appear on the Monster Kid uh, radar. Everybody else is more samurai-driven, samurai documentaries. There are some yokai films that came out of this, 
which could be Monster Kid Radio territory. But in terms of anything else we'd see on our radar, nope. Just, again, the Tachi features. Miwa Takata, who was the princess in this film, was offered the dub of Rudolph and the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer for the <laughs> television dub. Oh, really? In Japan, yes, which, if it's anything like in America, it's played every Christmas to death, so she's infamous in that way, but <laughs> yeah, uh, Ifukube stays through everywhere. The trilogy has, other than Daimajin, the trilogy introduces new human characters every time yeah, I'm trying my best here, trying to string it back to the whole uh, Monster Kid wheelhouse, but we are seriously in samurai country here. <laughs> Is there? A, I, mean, I can only imagine there's a samurai podcast, but I don't know a name of one off the top of my head. But, I mean, it almost seems like we need to reach out to them and say, hey, could you give us some pointers on how we could tie this back? <laughs> because we are just wandering around like, uh, there's a giant monster, and we got another guy that does the score. We're at a party where we don't know anybody else, and we're just like talking to ourselves, like, "Okay, we, we can do, we can make something of this, right? Right?" <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the cast list, and none of the names are, are grabbing me right now. And I, I'm sure there are listeners out there who know Kaiju better than me. I mean, you know Kaiju better than me. I'm sure there are listeners out there. It's like, but what about this guy? I'm like, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know. But I was taken enough by the performances that I would love to go and watch some of their other stuff, even if it's not monster related. I really liked, um, I'm going to mispronounce it. I'm so sorry. And Dominique keeps promising or threatening to uh, teach me some Japanese pronunciation. Mira Takata, Myra Takata. Um, I did like her quite a bit. But again, I, I don't recognize anything that she's been in other than this. And like I know the Zatoichi films, but that's about it. The screenwriter, Masaichi Nagata, did do the Gameras, but that's not, that shouldn't be a big surprise because, you know, Gamera was also done by Day. Just like, right. oh yeah, that's another connection, but we probably should have thought about that. It's just, yeah, we got, uh, in terms of trying to uh, figure out where we can draw it back to all the other kaiju or what else these uh, creators did, we're kind of... Uh, kind of floundering a little bit here. Dai was trying to do something new here, obviously, but they still want to keep their samurai intact. Sure. Which, you know, makes sense. I mean... Well, play to your strengths. Yeah, I mean, and they did. This is, We're not saying that this film is bad in any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely it's not. Just, no, it's great. It's just, you know, we're, we're, we're here trying to do the more in-depth side of this uh, review, and it's just like... Uh, this is all unfamiliar territory. We almost seriously need another guest on here. We need the samurai fanboy here to help <laughs> to tie it together more. I mean, Dai films before uh, Daimajin, they did Gamera, and then they did Gamera versus Baragon, then Zatoichi, Zatoichi, Gamera, the giant monster, where he first came, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Zatoichis back to back. Moving on to the suit, let's talk yeah. about the set pieces and mm -hmm. the scale. There is an insane amount of scale work here that's perfect. Because unlike other kaiju that are like 60 feet tall, Daimajin's like at the most like about 25 feet tall. He's bigger, but he's not to the point that, you know, he can re he's, you know, he does crush some people under his foot, but they still are sticking out at some ends because he's not big enough. But the scale work between it all, as he's uh, rampaging, as he's going through the town to seek vengeance against the evil ones, 
it seems good. It's good. It's very good, actually. It seems like it's on point with what they're delivering. It's just big enough to be threatening. I mean, not that a stone statue coming to life and attacking me wouldn't be threatening, but it's just big enough to be uh, intimidating, but it's not so big that you lose kind of the, I guess, personal connection that you sometimes get with giant monster movies. It still feels, in a way, a little relatable, as much as a demon god can, I guess. But it's it's not so far removed from our human scale that we can still kind of understand what's happening and that it's coming for you. It doesn't expect that you have a scene where you actually have somebody being crushed into a wall by the hand. It seems like they keep the scale going throughout the whole thing. But it's almost scarier that the monster will actually put their hands on you, that you will be crushed physically by the monster over the idea of it destroys the building you're in, it's special attack destroys the building you're in or destroys something near the area. Daimajin, through a lot of his uh, destruction, actually succeeds in touching and physically harming those that he is seeking vengeance against. Yeah, a personal connection. It gives you this personal threat versus natural disaster that Godzilla and the others can be. Like you said, it can actually put its hands on you and you will feel its intent as opposed to being a innocent bystander of the building that got swapped down by Godzilla's tail or you know Rodan's wake or something like that. It almost makes it more threatening. And he's also conscious or at least devilish enough to uh, have a sense of ironic vengeance because he pulls the chisel out of his head that was trying to use to kill him and uses it to harm the main bad guy. Oh, I love that so much. That, that was so intense. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. He deserved that level of comeuppance. I mean, the only thing he didn't do was kick a bag full of puppies into a well. <laughs> yeah, our villain is not uh, a very nice guy at all. You know, for all the destruction... You know, the guy getting spiked by the chisel or, like I said earlier, the, the moment that I just was really chilled by with the priest just threatening him and telling him the God's going to come and get you. And he hits her a few times with his sword. It's very slow and drawn out. The movie's overall kind of bloodless. I mean, there's a little bit of blood when the chisel comes, gets into or gets hammered into uh, the, the mountain god's head. But for the most part, it felt pretty bloodless to me, which... I guess means more people can see it. <laughs> they don't show any penetration right. with the blades piercing, and they got the you know slicing, then grabbing areas to show injury was done. And it feels like the only actual like straight-on disturbing moment was when they've captured Kogenta and they touch him with a heated knife. But even then, I think, uh, they don't they pull away for a second and you hear yeah. the moaning as he does it so that you don't actually see them press the blades to his skin. And that's actually where I was going to go with this, where you say you hear the reaction. And when the priestess is getting hit with the sword, you hear the sound of the sword cutting through something. And to me, I know visually, you know, that's our first sense when we're watching a movie we, we see it. But to me as an audio guy, hearing the sound of the cuts and the penetration and and the death is almost more unnerving and that's something else this movie has going for it absolutely it's so good oh yes i've been wanting to talk about this movie for a long time on the show and 
if you're out there, there is somebody who reached out to me a long time ago about wanting to talk about this movie, but I've had a hard drive failure since then. I mean, it was a long time ago, and I, I, I lost track of who that person was. So uh, if you are still listening, please call in and let me know what your thoughts are on this film, uh, because I know Anthony and I loved it. So good. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm going through the IMDb and the Wikipedia listing for this film and just clicking around, seeing if I can find anything else that the people that were involved in this movie uh, were involved with that might be relevant to MKR. And I might have just found something called Big Monster War from 1968 about a Babylonian vampire. So that kind of has my attention. You have my <laughs> attention. I'll give you that. <laughs> Looks like it's something that the writer of this film worked on. So... You know, there's a few monster things we can maybe branch out from here and, and 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 try to track down and see. Now, the other two Daimajin films were filmed pretty much around the same time, right? Like kind of back to back to back. Yeah, they're at least back to back to back, and they were released like within the a span of one calendar year. But the weird thing is, especially I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to them later, is it's surprising that the later two films find ways to improve on the idea and bring in like the aspects you would get from a more longer running series or just, you know, when they have time between the trilogy to, you know, say, okay, he could do this or he could do that for trying to improve on the character, much like they did with my beloved Gamera Heisei trilogy. But at the same time, there is no amount of time where they could look at one thing and go to another, or at least you wouldn't think so. Films with bigger gaps between their films and productions haven't uh, added effects or ideas that come in the later two films that this one does. They were written all by the same guy. I, I hear what you're saying that for a series of films that was produced and then released in such a relatively short amount of time, there's a lot of evolution and growth happening here in such a short period of time. It's pretty amazing to think about. But, and oh, I'll try to save some talking points when I actually do come again come across the other two but well for example in this film we see just a sliver of what we could actually call his power uh, Daimajin in terms of what he's able to do we see him able to like create some kind of orb of light that can manipulate the weather a little bit and we see him cross his hands and dis extinguish flames which you almost say is he's so big he's got that much wind he can snuff them out snuff out flame like it's candles mm-hmm but compared to, especially in the second film, where there's a lot of showcasing that he has powers at his disposal, or at least visually. And we'll definitely talk about those other films uh, at some point. I hope maybe even, you know, let's make sure we get it done sooner rather than later. I know a lot of times when we, I start a series on the show, it's like, oh, I'll have you back on and we'll talk about the next one. And how long did it take Scott and I to get through Planet of the Apes? So, yeah, let's make sure we <laughs> make it a point to get you on here sooner rather than later to do the other two films. Because I think the other two films, while they do evolve and, the, you know, what he can do does change a little bit, they're just as good. Just, I mean, they're, they've got some really creepy moments and the music's fantastic and man i want to see more with this guy i want to see more with the giant stone samurai going around wreaking vengeance i want to see that i don't know why we don't get more of it i mean only complaint is again we've got that whole situation of epilogue happens way too quickly it does just kind of end and me and derek are always firm on the whole it just ends endings are not our cup of tea your life has been changed by the events in this terrifying film. And in more ways than one, I mean, they were hoping on hope for change to bring the people back to peace and whatnot. Just like, 
Well, we could kind of like to see those people get their peace because we've seen them being whipped, tortured, starved. We kind of would like to see them just, you know, give us like a year later where Tadafumi has ascended to his father's position is a much more benevolent uh, person than Samonosuke ever could be. The fields are bountiful. Maybe his sister became the new priestess. And, you know, now she's in the mountains praying to like a smaller Daimajin, like not the actual statue, but like a statue in remembrance of Daimajin, what he did hmm. to make up for now that Shinobu's not there anymore, praying to all the other forest spirits that are around the area and thanking Daimajin for helping the people. You know, that's an extra like five minutes, guys. It wouldn't have killed you. You've got the sets. You've got the costumes, you know. <laughs> you know how to make these movies. Just do it real. Just throw it on there at the end. But, yeah, we, we see that in so many films where it just kind of ends. And I would just like to have a little extra to know how they moved on. You know, just a little bit. But we've talked about that quite a bit with, like, Beast of Hollow Mountain. And I'm sure we've talked about it with other films, too. But, but this one is like, it's banging you over the head of we need just a bit more because we need to see you know you've shown us divine vengeance well now we want to see the people get their treasure their joy of the fact that well we just were tortured for you know the better part of a decade Uh, any chance we could you know um full bellies and you know joy in the air (laughs) situation that'd be just a little that'd be appreciated just just a touch just a touch just a little bit yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know that said I, I do really love this film. It, it sits in a weird spot for me when you look at the various kaiju movies uh, that I adore, that I love. Uh, but it's it's such an interesting take. And to see that Dae was capable of doing much more than Gamera, Friend of All the Children type movies is fascinating. So good. Yes. I'm- I can just sit here and gush about it for another 20 20- 30 minutes yeah but and that's the whole thing we need to this seems like uh in terms of the rung of uh knowing and popular characters daimajin is low like in Mm -hmm. like criminally low literally criminally low i mean gorgo is more well known but daimajin the only other other than of course daimajin canon which i still gotta finish one these days i've been told by listening to uh the kaiju cast it doesn't exactly get much better later on from the first couple episodes. No, that's the TV series that I was kind of mentioning earlier. Yeah. Other than Daimajin Canon, the only thing I can think of back when Dark Horse had the rights for Godzilla, they actually enlarged and had Daimajin face Godzilla in a one shot. Really? So Dark Horse had the rights to both Toho and Dae at the same time? Yes, and of all the characters, wow. maybe they were trying to finally get that comic where Gamera fought, uh, oh, yeah. but unfortunately the best they were willing to go in terms of the rights was, we'll let you have Daimajin. That would have been amazing to see. I, I know it's the dream match, you know, Gamera versus Godzilla. Man, that would just be so much fun to watch. And I've seen so many people put up pictures of that, you know, drawings that they've done, and you know, edits online on YouTube. You watch fan edits of that happening, but man, to see that. But you know what? I'll take Godzilla versus Daimajin. I'll take it. I, I wasn't aware that Dark Horse did that. Was it like a one shot? Yeah, it really was just a one shot. And I remember reading a little bit. It's okay. It is good artwork, though, but the whole fight is just another one of those monster versus monster, but then Godzilla can't be destroyed, so tumble into the sea. And Godzilla leaves, and there at the bottom of the ocean was Daimajin just chilling out, knowing his work was done which, you know, it's good. It's just, 
you want a little more. Yeah. So they don't do the traditional comic book meetup where they both start fighting and then realize they're on the same side and they have a greater photo to deal with together and they, then they team up. They really try to make it more a modernization where Godzilla is an extreme force of nature. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, more like with the Heisei films, he's destructive and all and chaos incarnate. And we have to do everything we can just to be able to uh, survive his wake, which is a good way of taking it. But yeah, there was never a, hey, we got to team up and, you know, humanity needs us to save them again. (laughs) Is there anything else we want to say about the film? I know, like I said, I can sit here and gush about it for a long time because I love the way it looks. I love the way it sounds. I love the story. I mean, even though the monster, the kaiju, the Daimajin is really important to the plot, I love all the stuff that happens leading up to his rampage at the end. There's just so much to kind of dig into, and I would watch this over and over again. When you watched it most recently for the show, did you watch a dub or a subtitle? I have seen it only twice. This was a film I found later in my kaiju hunting days. Unfortunately, I've only seen the subtitle twice, so I haven't checked out the dub yet. Okay. In terms of this style of film, with it being more samurai-oriented, it just seems like a dub takes you out of it. I, I agree with you. I have not seen the dub either. I've only watched the subtitled version of this, uh, and I've got it, I believe, on blue. But again, I only watched the subtitle. I, I'm, I'm a purist that way. I always have been. But, I try to be, but you know, time being what it is, sometimes you have to hear stuff in your own language just to be able to get through it. Oh, and sometimes that's the only way you can see it here anyway. That's true. I mean, you know. It's gotten better over the years, but I remember for a long time, not that I'm the connoisseur that you are, but for a long time when anime was being brought over, the only way you could see it is dubbed. So, you know, it's gotten better, but. And for the longest time, all I wanted to see it was dubbed until I realized when I was back in the whole, you know, oh, I don't want to read, but then it's just like, if you don't read, you don't. You have to take your sweet time and wait for the dub to come out. Yeah. If you actually break down and read the subtitles. Your the palette of films you have expands beyond belief. Oh sure, and you know sometimes you can't trust the dub. Sometimes the dub's not quite the same thing that you're getting with the sub. Well, and vice versa too. I'm sure you probably can't trust the subtitles 100 percent of the time either. But and then there's the releases. I mean, you know, sure. how do we know that you're getting the right release? I mean. I'm pretty sure in terms of all the different release between minutes that are cut, there's multiple different versions I haven't seen of different, of different Godzilla films. I've seen all the Godzilla films, but the different cuts, I mean, I was shocked beyond belief when I finally got the DVD version of Megalon and watched it and saw that, uh, that scene where they're going down the road and the truck drivers have put up a Playboy model in the back of their car and there's actual nudity in Megalon. I'm like, Oh my, Oh wow. I, this scene was cut from television broadcast. I've never (laughs) seen it before. Oh, okay. This is, this is new. Different cuts, different, and even different dubs. Sometimes you've got different dubs going on, you know, depending on which company got a hold of it and released it here in the States. So it really does change the experience. I can't think of a kaiju film off the top of my head where this happens, but I do know there was a, um, there's a spaghetti western out there with Lee Van Cleef that I talked about when I was invited to be part of the B-Movie cast several years ago. And I watched it both subtitled and dubbed back to back just to see what the difference was. And there are subtle differences in the story. Even though it's the same visual, the dialogue was 
dubbed one way with the subtitles being different. And it was just interesting to see just little tiny changes here and there that really impact the overall story of the film. I know it has nothing to do with Time Machine, but you know. we could easily just mention uh, Return of Godzilla. Sure. The ads to that, though, are heavy. This isn't just a couple mm-hmm. subtitle changes or dub changes. That one had about 20 minutes chopped out of it that when I finally watched the original Blu-ray, I was just like, wow, this film is much more enjoyable than it was originally. I'm glad I finally went back and I'm not basing it on Godzilla 1985 anymore because Godzilla 1985 is not really that good of a film. You know, it serves its purpose. Uh, purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I need coffee, more coffee. It serves its purpose in that it does reintroduce that vicious kind of Godzilla. But yeah, I mean, I do prefer the Japanese cut to that. That's just, you know, it, me being a purist again. It involves, invokes the vicious Godzilla, but at the same time takes out setting up the world around it. Mm-hmm. The Cold War animosity that's going around. And, you know, they're thinking, is Russia and America arguing that they helped create Godzilla or, you know, that they're that somehow behind Godzilla's return, even though it's shown to be just Godzilla's back. You can't stop him. Mm -hmm. He's a force of all destruction. He just is, you know? Yeah. It's fun to talk about these movies, uh, especially, and I find this with a lot of the, the Asian monster movies in particular, whether they're kaiju films like this, or even something like, I know it gets real lumped in with the kaiju films, but like Matongo, which I guess technically is a kaiju film, just not daikaiju because they're not giant. It's just kind of interesting to see how they get brought over and then translated here. Uh, when we were playing the Classic Five, I mentioned Varan the Unbelievable. That movie has got such a different release here in the States than it did over in Japan because they did go in, they did what they did with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. They introduced a, an American storyline to go along with everything happening in Varan. The first camera film did it. You know, they brought in Brian Dunleavy and shot a bunch of stuff for the American audience, which I kind of like. But, you know, it's not the actual film as it was seen by Japanese audiences. Right. It's man, I could nerd out on that, too. I really could. <laughs> Let me bring it back. It makes me wonder <laughs> if they had actually shown a uh, American traveler that, that they edited in that came across the prince and princess but then gets captured and taken away and just is on the sidelines for the film. <laughs> but then it resulted in it having a larger release. Would Daimajin be more known? Man, I'm trying to imagine how that would work, how that could happen in terms of like timeline and history. How could they do that? I don't know. I'm an explorer come to trade and stuff. <laughs> and I speak your language, even though we're both speaking English because of the dub. <laughs> and, oh, the per- oh. I am going hunting with them. Oh, look, my friend who's off screen got captured. Oh, no, I have been captured, too. And then I can then I am off screen watching all the tortures as we're in the camp together. And then I am staring up in disbelief at the monster as it goes by that I can't interact with because I am just edited. Oh, man, I love it. Okay, somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to make a fan edit of that because I I know Anthony and I want to watch it. (laughs) Oh, man. It's good stuff. Maybe then Daimajin will become known as well as Gorgo. (laughs) I think people who are in it that are into the kaiju films the way you are and the way I've become know what Daimajin is. But it really does deserve a wider audience. And listeners, I know that we've spoiled it. But 
Come on. There is no spoiling it because the atmosphere can't be spoiled. You have to see it to believe. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Anthony and I, we, we've talked about it. We've told you what happens. We've kind of given you an overview of what happens at the end of the movie. But there is such mood and atmosphere and just flat out cool happening throughout the film that if you haven't seen it, man, I highly highly recommend it it definitely gets the monster kid radio seal of approval and it's out you can get it i think mill creek put it out didn't they that's the trilogy i have that's the blu-rays i have you can get it pretty cheaply it's pretty inexpensive you don't have an excuse man if you like giant monsters this is one for you totally so i've loved having you on the show again man it's been way way too long but you know i'm back now so all good things (laughs) all is right with the world again yep Oh, okay. So listeners, when Amazon does this, it typically means the movie's about to go out of print. For some reason or other, the Blu-ray is now selling. It's a collection of Daimajin. It's selling for $79.96. Now, that's not what I paid for it (laughs) when I got it a few years ago. Um, So if you can find it elsewhere cheaper, it's definitely worth it. Uh, But right now, Amazon's got a huge price on it because like I said, a lot of times... That means it's about to go out of print. So if you can find it, snatch it up. Snatch it up. Totally. So anyway, uh, I'll make sure there's a link for people to buy this through Amazon. If you feel so inclined to drop $80 on it, Uh, I get a very small percentage of that. But seriously, find it elsewhere because, yeah. Anyway, Anthony, it's been awesome to have you on the show again, like I was saying earlier. (laughs) And we will record again here soon about the other two Daimajin films. And then if anything happens with the book project you're working on, and I know it will, we got to have you back on to talk about that as well. Sounds good. Big thanks to Anthony for being on the show this week. You, sir, are the man. There will be links in the show notes to Anthony's book on Amazon, as well as to Pop Axiom. Can you tell that this is Brenda talking in Derek's voice because, or Derek's words, because he wrote this out for me. Thanks again, Anthony. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Seaweed, fish, and turtle's eggs. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. Never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. I'll kill you. Matango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Mamie. Oh, help me. Help me. Please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko! Where else? 
Matongo, the horrible mushrooms. Matongo, the vegetable monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading his way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Two all-color, all-action hits. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, a monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein Conquers the World stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein incarnate with the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World astounding on the giant screen, also on the same program. Tarzan, man of the jungle, with only a lion, a leopard, and a chimp as his army, can they conquer the hired killers of the dealer in death? Cy Weintraub presents... Tarzan and the Valley of Gold with Mike Henry and Nancy Kovac in Panavision and Color from American International Pictures. It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in horror vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience, and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, horror vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in horror vision and color. Jeff Punkrock Martin from the Joy Cinema and Pub. And A, I need to thank Derek for doing this show in the first place. And B, I hope it's not too late to weigh in on the lovely and amazing Julie Adams. Um, I love Julie Adams. I love Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I'm guessing that that's why a lot of Derek's listeners know her. Um, she was lovely and appealing and wonderful and talented. And let me see, there are a lot of actresses who are lovely and talented. But uh, just not that many, not nearly as many as you'd think have the appeal and just that that thing going on that Julie Adams had. She was just wonderful and beautiful, but there was a great sweetness about her, and you just you just really liked her. Just You loved her. She was the woman you wanted to, to marry and to go to the prom with and all those things. And the creature from the Black Lagoon definitely had those feelings, too. So anyway, I'm not talking very very well, and I'm not speaking very well, and I'm saying probably dumb things, but it's heartfelt, and I do love Julie Adams, and... I miss her, as I think every listener of Derek's will. Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks for having your show. Even though we're not doing a feedback segment this week since Derek is sick, he wanted to make sure this voicemail got in, and not just because Jeff said nice things about him. Derek just wanted to hear what his wife would say in response to someone calling Julie Adams the woman you wanted to marry and go to prom with. And I would say, 
everybody else is screwed because in that alternate universe, Derek already went to prom and married her. (laughs) That said, this brings us to the end of the show. The note here says mention the website, monsterkidradio.net, and the contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and the phone number, 503-479-5MKR, which he helpfully writes out for us, is 503-479-5657. Of course, the show's on Facebook and Twitter, and links to everything he talked about in this episode will be in this week's show notes. For next week's movie... We'll be visited by the ghost of Todd Brown from the Haunted Cinema to talk about the 1945 film, The Vampire's Ghost. I would like to make clear that I did not sign up to be haunted. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered... All right, I'm going to try to do this in the same breath, like in one breath, like Derek does. Until next night. Next night. Just the next night. I hear you do this all the time. Why am I having a hard time? (laughs) Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC. I lost my place. (laughs) Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives. Derivatives. Under under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to this song, Lane Splitter. That song belongs to the Knoxville, Tennessee surf band Phantom Operators. It's from the new album, Electric Sunrise, that you can pick up for $5 on their Bandcamp page at phantomoperators.bandcamp.com. I'm hoping Derek can work his magic on that mess. Thanks for listening. This is... I'm supposed to say Derek's amazingly awesome, supportive, etc., etc. wife, Brenda, but... I'm not just the wife, Brenda. I am the intro-outro woman, Brenda. So this is intro-outro woman, Brenda. Derek will be back next week if all goes according to plan. I am trying to nurse him back to health, I promise. Ciao. (laughs) 